America, we have come so far. We have seen so much, but there's so much more to do. So tonight, let us ask ourselves, if our children should live to see the next century, if my daughters should be so lucky to live as long as Ann Nixon Cooper, what change will they see? What progress will we have made? This is our chance to answer that call. This is our moment. This is our time to put our people back to work and open doors of opportunity for our kids, to restore prosperity and promote the cause of peace, to reclaim the American dream and reaffirm that fundamental truth that out of many we are one, that while we breathe we hope, and where we are met with cynicism and doubt and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Thank you. God bless you. And may God bless the United States of America. Welcome to the Rhetorical Leadership Podcast. What you just heard there was the uh, peroration or the ending of the uh, Barack Obama's 2008 uh, acceptance speech. And my guest today, Simon Day, uh, chose that speech as uh, his introduction, say, um, because uh, Barack Obama has been a, uh, a speaker that has inspired him quite a bit uh, in his own public speaking. Um, and we'll get back, get over to that later, but just to introduce him... Uh, Simon Day was not a terrific, uh, overly, always a terrific public speaker. Um, actually, he was terrified. He was uh, what he would say probably terrible and terrified of public speaking. Um, and uh, that fear was uh, debilitating for a very long time. But he has come a very long way from that to becoming uh, one of the finalists and a, a, a award-winning public speaker in the, in the UK. And uh, he's joined me today to tell a little bit about that journey and also to talk a little bit about how we can how we can help um, you in uh, your preparation for for uh, public speaking try to trying to lead through persuasion rather than by force um, and we're going to be talking about some of the things also about style memory and delivery um, and rhetoric in general so uh, welcome Simon Day Thank you very much for having me, and uh, I appreciate you've driven a little way in the snow this morning to make this happen, so I'm all, all the more <laughs> grateful to you. Thank you. Yeah, just to the studio. Um, so, uh, first of all, I'd just like to ask you, what makes you uh, passionate about uh, public speaking? I think a lot of people have an outdated perception of, of public speaking. They, they almost imagine it to be standing in front of a huge auditorium full of people delivering some kind of, of lecture, and, and whilst that does fit into the remit of, of public speaking... I like to invert the phrase and I talk about speaking in public because we now live in a very diverse world, a world in which there are many different roles and opportunities and different types of employment and jobs that didn't even exist uh, 50 to 100 years ago. So we now talk about speaking in public and any time that you're called upon to speak and, and lift up your voice in front of other people to communicate a message or an idea, then you are speaking in public. Now, the problem that we get with that is that 75% of us suffer with some form of, of glossophobia or fear or anxiety about speaking in public. And it's something that at its, at its most minimal can make you feel a little bit apprehensive or nervous or perhaps restrict your level of performance. But at its very worst, it can completely shut you off from opportunities and relationships 
that you might otherwise have and, and lead you to live a very limited life. Mm. So I'm very passionate about public speaking because I've experienced those things in my own life, that darkest of corners where you feel like you can't get out and you can't talk to anyone. And I've experienced a loneliness that comes into your life when that happens. And I'm passionate about it because I've worked very hard over the last seven years or so to overcome that fear of speaking. And now I'm in a position where I've learned some valuable lessons and I've come to a point in my own journey where I now feel sufficiently empowered to turn back behind me to look at people who perhaps are in those dark corners and, and are where I was and perhaps to bring them forward and, and help them out of those places uh, into a more purposeful and meaningful life. Yeah, I mean, just uh, listen to the, what you were able to say there, right? You, you wouldn't have thought that uh, just seven years ago uh, you were, um, by your own description, uh, terrified, absolutely terrified of, uh, of speaking and other people listening and watching. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, uh, the way he describes it was that, uh, well, uh, you could tell a bit, bit about yourself, but I've, I've just been listening a bit to your story and... Uh, that uh, there was a uh, presentation you had to do back in uh, back in school. Was, was it uh, the equivalent of, of junior high or high school? Yeah, so I was I was 16 years old. So I was in my final year of, of high school here in the UK. Right. Uh, I don't know how it quite equates in Europe and, uh, and the American education system. But uh, you're right, I, I was offered to... Uh, the teacher, it was a citizenship lesson. So we were learning about law and order and, and citizenship and... and the teacher at the front of the class said to us, we've got to deliver a short presentation to the rest of the year group about uh, what we've been doing in these extra classes and, and how it's benefited us in preparation for the exams so they can all pick up some, some information. So we've got a 10-minute presentation to give in an assembly in a few weeks' time. Uh, who would like to volunteer? And this was a class of 16. <laughs> Nobody volunteers in high school, right? Yeah. Stone silence. You could, you could hear the draft coming through the Victorian windows. Right. Yeah, it, was, it was terrible. And the teacher, obviously feeling a little bit awkward that nobody had taken him upon the offer, um, unfortunately caught my eye, and and that was it. You know, as soon as eye contact is made, that's that's an unknowing signal that you've just put yourself up for it. So he looked across at me and said, "You know, Simon, great opportunity for you. You'll you'll learn some vital life skills. You know, that will put you down for the presentation." So you've been uh, I ended you've been up standing for, up on you've been my own for the Hunger, hunger Games. <laughs> oh, it was, it was the worst, the worst ten minutes of my teenage life, and. Uh, <laughs> I just thought at first it was nerves. I thought at first I was just a little bit apprehensive. It was natural. It right, because everyone is, right? Yeah. Yeah, completely. And and unfortunately, it, it, everything that I thought could have gone wrong went wrong. Um, my voice was shaking. I couldn't, I couldn't breathe in between my sentences. I was mumbling too much, staring at the floor. It mm. just, it, I, got, I don't even remember what I spoke about. I, and, I think and, we've all had one of those, one of those moments, whether in, you know, in a, a large assembly or a small one, right? But where just everything goes wrong. Yeah, and and I think my memory's tried my best to, to blank it out. And <laughs> I, don't, I, I only remember the, the horrific feeling I had. And uh, I just, I thought it was a case of nerves that would get better. And I just I assured myself that it was natural, it would it would improve. Um, and then it, and then it got worse. I had other experiences on a, on a first date where I got chicken that was really badly cooked and I thought oh I should complain about this but I'm terrified I'm on a first date I'm really nervous <laughs> so I just ate it and got food poisoning and, oh, and that was the better alternative <laughs> at the time I mean, um, it's interesting how many people just like negotiate that down right the, um, yeah. like Jerry Seinfeld said there was a study that uh, the number one fear of uh, those spread around people was uh, speaking in public 
Uh, number two was death. And so that means if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than giving the funeral oration kind of thing. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and the, number, the number of bits of research I've looked at about people's fear of speaking is, is that it, it impacts not just on our personal lives, but our professional lives as well. That mm. There's evidence to suggest that we avoid applying for jobs or it restricts our career progression or it affects our mental health at work and we can't talk to anyone about it. And, and this is, although it's not at the forefront of a lot of people's consciousness, it is something that is, is strangling and choking our potential and our lives. And, and it's, it's a plague I want to be rid of. Certainly in my own life, I've got somewhere on the road. I'm not completely there yet. But it's uh, something that I want to help other people to get rid of. So it's become very much a, a, a strong passion of mine. And at, at the time when I realized it was affecting my per, my professional life as well um, I ended up quitting my first job because I was on a, a marketing team where I was writing all the, the content and doing all the computer-based stuff perfect and right. that was great perfect you, you don't have to sit behind the screen you can hide no yep. personal contact whatsoever <laughs> absolutely and I love that until the operations director came across and said uh, we're short-staffed on the sales team so from Monday you're going to spend two days a week on the phone well that was it I quit because I'd come face to face again with, with what I was now discovering to be a debilitating anxiety. Mm. And, and I, I had two choices. I can either put this right and I can do something about it and, and get myself out of this and have access to those career and personal and professional opportunities, or I'm going to live a life in the shadows. Um, and, and I was looking at that thinking this could really happen if I don't do something to start to switch this balance. Okay. It was about that point back in 20, 2014, 2015, when I started to uh, to make some serious changes. Could I ask you just about the that, I don't know, like because there's just so many people that I know, they come to that moment, but they just never have the belief in themselves that they can actually do something about it. They just mm. believe that that's just the way I am. And mm. if that means diminishing my career opportunities i just have to you know i just have to get learn to live with this like have to learn with the, to live with the uh you know with the legs not working you know good i'll be in a wheelchair uh you know like this is just a debil disability and i just have no chance of getting out of this mm. um what made you different <laughs> you know like they what made you actually have the aspiration and the belief that you could be something more um that's, then, a, that's a very that. good question. That's a very good question. I, I think I, I'm going back now to 2014. And that was when I just quit the job um, over this, this fear. Uh, I was a newly married man at the time. And that sounds very strange considering I didn't talk to anyone. Um, my <laughs> wife was just... <laughs> how did you propose, right? In writing? <laughs> uh, well, it was freezing cold. So it masked my, my shivering out of fear was, was masked by the cold. Uh, my, my wife is, is almost as much of an introvert as me. And, uh, she was the girl I actually went on that first date with, with the undercooked chicken. So I think she sort of knew what she was getting, um, <laughs> when she saw somebody that would rather get food poisoning than talk to someone. Oh uh, and we, we, we got married in 2013 and by 2014, I'd quit my first job and, and I was so terrified of talking to people. Uh, I remember sitting in our, our first house. Uh, one night in, in our uh, small four, four-roomed bungalow uh, that we managed to to get on our newly married uh, salary. And I'd just quit my job, so I was looking for another one. And I remember sitting in the front room, and, and I remember having the thought to myself, 
this isn't just you anymore. Mm. And what I mean by that is, is it wasn't just my life that I was affecting now. I, I had a wife who'd put her faith and trust and confidence in me. And I realized that if I wasn't going to, to step up and try to battle my own struggles, that it was her life now on the line because she depended on me mm. to, yeah. to help. And she was working at the time and she was earning more money than I was, which mm. I was, I was really pl- pleased for her and really grateful for. But I thought I'm not going to let her pull my weight for my entire life. I need to do something about this. Mm. And I remember having that thought and that I think was what sparked it, it was the realization that I was now in a partnership with somebody else who needed me to step up. And that was a motivating factor but I, but I think I, I just knew that I had to do what I knew I could do at that time. And I wasn't ready to stand up and speak yet. I wasn't ready to speak out loud or go to meetings and stand on a stage. But what I, what I knew I could do is I was a voracious reader and I could research hmm. and I had, I had the internet. So I got onto YouTube and I started watching <clears throat> as many videos, as many inspirational talks as I could find start reading as many books as I could get my hands on about why is this so scary? What is it that makes people feel afraid and can it be overcome? And everything I read and watched said, yes, it can be. There are things that you can do to manage it. There are things you can do to improve your outward appearance of confidence when you're speaking to people. Mm. And I, and I started to lap this up and I started to get hold of as much as I possibly could. And I started reading and started watching mm. and took on as much theory as I could to a point where I was then ready to try and start to put it into practice. Uh, and that's when in 2015, uh, in the summer, I found a, an organization called Toastmasters, which started in the United States in 1924, but it's now a global organization with clubs and members all across the world. So I found a local club in, in Leeds um, and, and emailed and asked if I could go and if it would be right for me and, and what it was about. And they said, yeah, we help people overcome fear of public speaking, stand up, get speaking practice. Uh, learn the basic principles and then use that in their in their jobs and in their careers and in their personal life. And I thought that's that's what I need. So in August 2015, that's where I went. And uh, the next five years, as they say, a history. Uh, I've I've been an integral part of that club. I've served as its president, and I've that's where I won the uh, the UK award back in 2019. And so, just for people, uh, obviously, you know, they have to go there to experience it, but. Mm. What, uh, and, uh, you know, I don't want you to, uh, I guess, give away the whole curriculum of what you go through, what you, what you do there, but, uh, um, but what was it uh, about that experience that was so helpful for you, uh, that, that made such a difference for you? I think I can, I can say now that I, I am a product of the feedback that I've received. Mm. And what happens to too many of us is we just go about our day until there's a formalized opportunity for feedback, maybe a performance review that's part of a mandatory uh, policy or anything like that. And what I've discovered is that in order to improve and to improve quickly, you can't just sit around and wait for those. You have to go and solicit feedback. Right. And, and what I am grateful for is that Toastmasters and then the Professional Speaking Association that I joined in 2018 both of those organizations revolve around feedback. So there are opportunities for you to stand up and speak. And every time you do, somebody or a group of people will give you very specific, very detailed, sometimes quite quite challenging feedback. But that's how you improve. Mm. 
And at first I remember just feeling terrified about all the feedback I was getting and how am I going to implement that? But, but I remember Toastmasters in particular, uh, that's kind of like where you learn to drive. That's where you, you learn the initial principles, uh, the theory, the speech craft, the, the ideas of how to use eye contact and vocal variety and gesture and stage movement, all these kinds of things. And they teach you about them. And there are different pathways that you can take when you join Toastmasters. So if you want to learn how to coach better or learn how to be motivational or learn how to do effective presentations, there are different modules you can take. So I, I did one called Persuasive Influence because I wanted to help to motivate people and help them to reach for, within themselves to become better. So I took that pathway and, and I learned gradually through those little modules how to get the basics of speech craft. And then the Professional Speaking Association is, is more about the road trip. It's about, I've got the principles now. I know how to drive. How far can I take it? Where can mm. I go with it? Who can I reach? How fast that's can, more I, how fast can I race? Perhaps also a little bit, right? Yeah, it's more about the professional side of it. If you want to do it as a job and earn money from speaking, that's right. more way. Everyone drives, but not everyone's Michael Schumacher kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think we, we talked about this before and, and I think there's an important principle here, which is that just because I want to go out and kick up a football, it doesn't mean I'm going to be the next Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi. Right. Um, I, I don't want Which one to... is best of those two, but <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> oh, that's the eternal question. Um, but, but no, I think it's, it's one of those questions you have to come across is, is how far do I want to go with this? Right. And I think I was on a mission to find out exactly how far I could go. Mm. Now I'm not going to be Barack Obama. I've accepted that and, and it, it fills my heart with some sorrow because he's wonderful, but it's, it's not going to happen. But what is the best that I can achieve in my circle of influence and with my level of knowledge? Now that's a question I'm going to spend the rest of my life finding out the answer to. Mm. And that's what makes life exciting. So we don't want to give people false hope and say, look, you're going to be a world beating speaker from the off. We can't, we can't say that, but what we can say is, well, there is so much untapped potential that you have, and there is potential for great things. Now, what great things looks like for you, only you can find out. And that's what makes life great. So, you know, we, we don't want to put too high pressure on people and say, you know, you need to be this far by this time. I mean, it's taken me seven years to get to where I am. Where will I be in another seven? I have no idea. So that's for, for a lot of people listening, well, where they'll be at is at that first Toastmasters meeting right where you uh, t take us into that that room and like the your experience of it kind of the first time because you've kind of chosen to take a step now and you're not what sure what you're getting into and it's kind of uh <laughs> it's it's kind of a weird place to be in where wow everyone around me is going to be practicing to speak in public yes and and again you, i've always said you never jump higher if you don't lift the bar so you've got to have something to jump over and it's got to be sufficiently challenging, not something so high that you think I'll never jump over it, but not something so low where you think, well, I needn't bother because I can do it. Now, stepping into that first meeting, the bar was set at, at, at the highest I could jump. And it was, it was high enough that I thought, oh, I'll be impressed if I do that. If you even so go I, to the meeting, I walked into right. this meeting and I remember... A couple of the members, and, and they're still my friends to this day. One of them was called Peter, and the other one was called Paul. Interestingly enough, two birds. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You're not making they, that up. That's just that's really true. Oh, it was, it was great. They, they both came up to me at the first meeting, and they were, they were the two people that I connected with most strongly. Um, Peter was a wonderful mentor, and and he, he walked up to me and he said, "You know what? What brings you?" And and 
it, it just got me into a conversation so naturally and so graciously and so warmly that I didn't even realize I was talking to him. Right. It's kind of almost an out-of-body experience, but, but he said, you know, what, what do you want to achieve from being here and, um, and what's brought you? And, and I was able to just have a brief chat with him. And he said, well, look, in the second half of the meeting tonight, there's going to be a chance for you to stand up and speak if you would like to. He said, we, we, what we do is we do this thing called table topics where you can you get posed a question about, you know, my ideal weekend or my uh, favourite holiday destination, you know, something where you can just get up and, and share an opinion. And he said, it'd be great if you, if you think about having a go. So he'd already planted the seed. And then he came up to me at the interval and he said, what do you think? Would you like to try it? And, and a voice other than mine responded and said, yes, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> so in the second half of the meeting, I got posed a, a question. And again, this is where my memory blanks because I don't remember the topic. It's interesting. And, and I got up, I remember getting up to the front and there were probably about 15 or 20 people in the room, but that was enough for me. And I don't remember what I said. I just remember feeling very hot and very uh, uncomfortable, mumbling something for about 50, 60 seconds and then sitting down. Mm. And I remember my left hand started to hurt. And I thought, am I having a heart attack? What's going on? And, and I remember looking down at my left hand and the skin on both sides of my wedding ring finger was sliced and it was starting to bleed. Because what I realized I'd done is I'd been pushing my wedding ring into my finger so hard <laughs> with subconscious nerves that I'd sliced my own finger. Uh, and that's where I started from. That was my first meeting. Uh, but, but meeting by meeting, decision by decision, <clears throat> I decided I was going to join and I was going to get involved and I was going to try and put uh, more on the table. And I don't think there's, there's, I've hardly missed a meeting in five years and I've hardly attended a meeting without doing something. Mm. And I think that it's that decision on decision basis, getting the feedback every meeting, that eventually led to me entering that Toastmasters contest in, in 2019 and working my way right through to the, to the national level and, and becoming that UK champion. I mean, that's, uh, it's amazing how quickly uh, you were able to do that, uh, considering that there are other people in that organization that probably have been members longer than you. So I guess that uh, suggests either a certain level of dedication or a certain level of talent, uh, natural talent that, uh, that you bring to it. I think it, yeah, I think there is a bit of both, but I think it will mostly be dedication. Um, I'm always moved by, I've got a book up here called Atomic Habits by James Clear um, that I've started reading. And he uses the example of um, Dave Brailsford with British Cycling. And, and at the time he took over, British Cycling had won nothing for a century. Uh, and, he, and he undertook what's called the aggregation of marginal gains, where he talked about, okay, what, what, how much does the frame of the bike weigh? You know, how aerodynamic can we make the costumes? What pillows do the riders use to sleep with? Um, what kind of massage gel do we use to, to heal their muscles? What diet are they on? And, and he used to take a tiny area and make it marginally better. And over the course of the next decade, British cycling from 2007 to 17 has just dominated the world in terms of gold medals, world championships, Tour de France's. That adds up to a gold, yeah. It, it's it's all through the pursuit of marginal gains. So we take one tiny area and I make that a little bit better. And that's what Toastmasters and the Professional Speaking Association do is they take your speaking down to the micro level and they say, how could you make this bit of your speech better? How could you make that bit of your delivery better? And they turn the screw every time. And so you're always focusing on one area of your speaking. And now, just like driving, I can get in my car, drive to work, get out of my car, and I haven't even thought about how I've got there. Mm. Speaking is, is the same. It gets to a point 
where all the principles come together and you gradually feel like you can get up on a stage, have a conversation with the audience, sit down and think, that just happened. How did I do that? And you can't analyze it. It's just a blend of all these different ideas working together. It's become this um, kind of, this trained ability, mm, trained capacity. Very much so. mm. Yeah. So uh, what are you working on right now? <clears throat> At the moment, I, I've, I've built a self-made brand. Um, so Simon speaks.co.uk is the website and, and I've built that brand from from scratch uh, I'm at a point now where mo- well most of my time I, my day job is that I'm a middle leader in a secondary school mm-hmm. uh, in Leeds so I teach English and rhetoric yes <laughs> and uh, I spend most of my time teaching young people and I think they're a great audience because if you can engage young people you can engage anyone so it's a really good test right that's uh, probably the hardest uh, one of the harshest audience audiences you can have yeah if, if they're bored they'll let you know <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. The, the, they'll either put their head on the desk or throw something at you. I mean, huge, uh, huge, huge <laughs> difference from someone who wouldn't, didn't want to go on a sales call, right? Like, quit a job because they didn't want to go on a sales call. Absolutely. You'd have, you'd have never convinced me five years ago to be a teacher. <laughs> uh, but but I, I've unlocked something within myself. And uh, I, I love working with these young people because they're great. And, and they deserve a, a champion. They deserve a mentor, somebody that's going to work with them. So I enjoy doing that. But... Uh, on the, on the evenings and weekends, I live my double life, which is I, I coach people uh, in public speaking and communication. So whether it's somebody who's a, a manager of a company, who's got a keynote to prepare or a presentation, or they're trying to lead their teams better, or they want career progression from where they are now and they, they want to win more pitches mm. uh, for their business. I, I've worked with people on, on all of these things. So I, I coach people and help them to overcome their anxieties, but also... I'm now working, I've just finished a master's in creative writing, uh, which helps me with storytelling and speech craft. So mm. I'm a bit of a speech writer and I enjoy working with people to craft those presentations, use principles of, of rhetoric and uh, make sure that they deliver them with power so that they can they can achieve those, those personal and professional goals. So is, is that the area that you're kind of focusing on specifically now, the kind of the, the, the crafting of, of the speech? Uh, very much so, yeah. I, I think it's the coaching and speechcraft element that, I, that I'm most interested in and the storytelling. I, I've come to accept in my own life that if I never become a world-class speaker, I'm perfectly happy. But what I want to do with my own life is help other people to become great speakers mm. and to influence their uh, circles of influence and, and the people that they're working with. So I'm very much focused on doing that. So I'm just finishing off at the moment a, a masterclass called Overcoming Your Fear of Public Speaking. And that's going to be available on the website within the next month or so um, for download so that people don't have to necessarily work with anyone in particular. They don't have to engage with with a coach if they don't feel ready, but they've got something that they can download, watch in their own time. It's autonomous. Great. And, and it's kind of what I wish I had seven years ago. It's right. the tool that I wish I'd had. So that's what I'm trying to offer. And so uh, <clears throat> what, I'd like, what I'd like you to do a little bit is to uh, go through... A, a couple of uh, of uh, these things that uh, that you've learned and, and show, uh, give a little bit of a demonstration of it um, and and discussion of it. So, um, there are there are as uh, some people may know there are kind of five canons of of rhetoric. Uh, there mm-hmm. are there's uh, invention, so finding the right kind of arguments, um, and that area there by itself comprises about ninety percent of academic. <laughs> of ac- academic uh, research because it's all about um 
the readiness of audience for certain kind of arguments, uh, what certain kind of arguments do to a public space, what kind of debate they create, all those things. Uh, and that's like 90% of where I've been. Um, and then there's arrangement of the speech, uh, mm -hmm. how, like in more globally, the kind of the large structure of the speech. And then there's uh, style, the kind of uh, individual kind of flourishes of uh, of the speaking where, you know, you use, for example, um, antistrophe, you use uh, anaphor, you use uh, uh, antith antithesis, which Barack Obama uses a lot, uh, mm. apostrophe. Um, I one I like a lot is transplacement. One who has nothing in life more desirable than life cannot cult cultivate a virtuous life, for example, or many miss the opportunity of a lifetime because they do not seize it in the lifetime of the opportunity that's kind of those those small things there that you, ooh, that's ooh, that's kind of cool um yeah. they that's the stylistic flourishes um and then there's uh, memory because you need to have you need to obviously be able to uh, memorize quite a bit of this so you're not just reading it uh mm -hmm. and then there's the delivery so those three last parts i feel like uh, you are uh, much more uh, versed in those than I am, and uh, I'd like you to take us first on the stylistic part because that's where you've you've had a lot of inspiration from Barack Obama, right? Mm. Yeah, and and I have to confess at this point I, I am not uh, an academic by any means. The the theory is still something I'm very much I've become interested in. I'm I'm looking into now, but but even my masters in creative writing was very much around storytelling and how to deliver a story. So right. math writing is very much practical, but I'm now trying to back that up by going back to the theory and, and making that work. So you mentioned Barack Obama and, and I love, I love Barack Obama's speeches in particular. My favorite is the the one that we played at the beginning. So the 2008 acceptance uh, when he won the presidency and it just struck such a tone and, and I've always loved it. And then a couple of years ago, uh, at the same time, so it's 2019, the same time I was competing in the UK final. Over that weekend, we had some workshops. And there was a workshop delivered by a man from Norwich where the, where the conference was hosted uh, called Marcus Hemsley. And I owe a lot to Marcus because he taught me about rhetoric and he taught me about Barack Obama in this workshop. So he went to that speech, that 2008 acceptance. So it pricked my attention immediately because I love the speech. And, and he said, I'm going to teach you some very basic rhetorical principles. And he only focused on three. And he focused on the power of three, uh, which which Barack Obama uses to great effect. And, and, and very so often. just just so we uh, explain that to the audience, that is to kind of to divide um, your to focus kind of or d divide your points into kind of three main principles that you can like for example uh, uh i came i saw i won you know the, the, like the that's julius caesar right Vini, Vici. Um, yeah. the the kind of recitation of, of of three things uh kind of building up to a climax kind of thing is, is that is that what you're saying yeah, absolutely. And what I like about Barack Obama is he uses different types of, of three. So he uses what I call an emphasizing three. So he talks about people who donated $5 and $10 and $20 to his campaign. Right. Or he talks about the idea his campaign was hatched in the front porches of Charleston, the living rooms of Concord and the backyards of Des Moines. Mm. You know, it, these beautiful ideas. And, and then there's one near the end where he uses what I like to call a progressive or transitory three. So he says, America, we've seen so much. We've come so far, but there's so much more to do. Past and the present future. Yeah. And, and forwards in the same in the same motion, which is, is beautiful. So these three three ideas, this emphasis. So that's the power it, of three. 
Yeah, it's it's underused. It's powerful, and we need to do it more often. There you go. There's there's another one. Um, <laughs> but uh, I absolutely love it, and it's it's there's something about the brain that just takes the pattern and takes groups of three and just seems to absorb it better. It's one of the magical um, numbers in fairy tales too, right? Three. Yeah, three little pigs and uh, uh, the three three, three rings of the uh, of the elven kings, right? <laughs> in Lord of the Rings. It just, I think it's something we've grown up with and, and it's its a pattern that we absorb. So there's, there's that one. That's the first technique that he taught us. Mm. The second one is to create a puzzle and a solution. Uh, so you can do this either through a direct rhetorical question, but you can also do it gradually over the course of a speech by creating an atmosphere of curiosity where the audience wants to know the answer to whatever it is you've proposed. And then at any time in the rest of your speech, you can deliver that answer and satisfy that curiosity. And the longer you can keep it hanging with people wanting to know, the more you've got their engagement. Creating so, a, a knowledge gap, I believe, is what Danae calls that. Yeah, and, and there's an example in Barack Obama's speech where he talks about um, the victory, and he says, but above all, I will never forget who this victory truly belongs to. And there's a really long pause, and then he says, it belongs to you. Mm. And the audience go, oh, okay, why does the victory belong to us and not the guy who won it? And then he goes through all of the things that the people have done mm. to vote for him, to campaign for him, to help him. And then he repeats again, this is your victory. And he solves that curiosity. I just think it's masterful. So rhetorical questions can work, but, but any way in which you can create curiosity by an unresolved statistic or anything like that um, is, is really helpful. And then the final one is to create contrast. And you've mentioned it already, this kind of antithetical language where you create vivid imagery that contrasts so again um there's a bit in, in Barack Obama's speech i'm going back to it where he talks about for even as we celebrate tonight we know the challenges tomorrow will bring um and then he throws in the ascendancy of two two wars a planet in peril the worst financial crisis in a century so he, he goes from celebration to the, to the vivid and stark challenges that america's facing mm. and that contrast is is powerful in terms of pathos it makes you feel the urgency with which he's delivering it. So the idea of the contrast, uh, the puzzle and solution and, and the rule of the power of three was what Marcus did in this workshop. And he played as a, a segment of the Barack Obama speech. And he said, just look for those three. And, and I ran out of paper. I mean, the telechart was running off the end within <laughs> three minutes because he just Barack Obama doesn't just use them. He weaves them together. Mm. And it's, it's so masterful how he does it. But then he turned the tables, did Marcus, because he stood at the front. And he said, you've watched how a masterful speaker does it. You're all members of Toastmasters. I want to know how Toastmasters has changed your life, but I'm not just going to ask you to tell me. He said, I want you to write me a short speech in the style of Barack Obama. You've got 10 minutes, off you go. <laughs> and I sat there and thought, so I've got to write a, a short speech in the style of Barack Obama explaining how Toastmasters has influenced my life over the last five years. And I've got 10 minutes. So I did. And, and that was the moment at which rhetoric became a very real presence and power to me. And I recognized that there was so much more for me to learn mm. in, in employing this, not just to speak or to communicate a message, but to win hearts and win minds and, and transform people's attitudes about something and make sure they want to leave a room uplifted and with a desire to put these things into practice. And that's rhetoric. That's how you achieve it. So uh, could you uh, give us that speech? I can. I think I think I still remember it. It was yeah. it was about eighteen months ago. So yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. So I was asked to deliver a one minute speech on how Toastmasters has influenced my life. So I'm gonna deliver deliver something. I'll explain what what I've done. 
You might be wondering how we came to be here this afternoon. Why did we sit down in this room on a Saturday afternoon? In some way or another, we all are here because Toastmasters has influenced our lives for good. And we now want to use what we have learned at Toastmasters to influence the lives of others for good. My story doesn't begin in the grand bustling or vibrant city of London. My story begins in the cramped, menacing, red brick terraces of North Leeds. My journey didn't begin with articulate words, coherent sentences or fluent structures. It began with fumbling and trembling and stuttering. From barely being able to stand and speak to any audience in any room, I can now stand and speak on this stage in front of you. If you are wondering, I can't do this, and wonder if you will ever lose your fear, find your voice, or discover your strength, wonder no more, because today I am living proof that yes, you can. <laughs> so that, that, that was essentially what I delivered. Um, and, and if we think about it in terms of the structures, you know, you can, you can hear in there that I've got lots of antithetical language. So the grand bustling, vibrant city of London versus the cramped, menacing mm. red brick terraces of, of North Leeds. So I've got the, the antithesis in there, but the rule of three uh, across both sentences. Mm-hmm. And then what Barack Obama does really cleverly is he resolves, he always creates a sentence where uh, he resolves it at the end. In fact, the first sentence of his speech at 2008 is, is where I took my last sentence from. So he gets up and he says, if there's anyone out there who still wonders if American democracy is still alive and kicking, uh, tonight is your answer. So he poses these questions people might be having and then says, well, this is your answer. So in the last sentence, I went, you know, do you wonder I can't do this and wonder if you'll ever do these three things? wonder no more because yes you can so i resolve the sentence between start and end and i, I just tried to mirror his style as closely as i possibly could um, and and i got an opportunity in the workshop to stand and deliver it at the front of the room and um i, I got i got a round of applause and thought oh and, and then marcus turned to me and said you've got you've got this you've got a knack for this you need to start seeing how you can use this to change your own life and and that was the moment at which i thought is he right? Do, do I have something that, that means I just, I understand this innately without necessarily knowing all the theory behind it. So I, I've launched myself into it since, and now I'm trying to almost go backwards and, and theoretically justify what I've come to understand from just doing it, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So it, <clears throat> rather than going to the theory first and then trying to put it into practice, what you, what you're doing now is trying to find out from the theory, what you actually are already doing in practice. Is That's that right? it. I've, yeah. I've, I've learned to drive by crashing a few cars. <laughs> if you think of it that way. <laughs> yeah. And then afterwards, Oh, that's how pistons work. Oh, that's <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That middle one's the brake. Oh, okay. <laughs> that didn't work last time. Now it works. Okay. That was, yeah. Uh, I guess I have the other experience of, uh, you know, where I have just tons and tons of theory and a lot of it, I just haven't even had a chance to apply it. Um, mm-hmm. because absent from Toastmasters, you don't have that many opportunities for public speaking. Um, you know, some have it, you know, in, in 
perhaps in church uh, sometimes or uh, in other... Uh, obviously, I have some chance for public speaking because I teach at a university. And that is obviously a place, but it's not... It's a, it's a, it's a restrict, restricted genre, say it that way. I do sometimes, you know, display speeches and so on. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's not one where uh, it's as high stakes, and also it has a different kind of, a different kind of audience and different kind of ex- expectation than, for example, you're you're speaking at a celebratory event or something like that. Mm. And, and I think what you've done there is highlighted the exact problem as to why so many people suffer with anxiety because we go through school and, and certainly having worked in the education sector for nearly a decade now, the, the big criticism I have of it is that there is not enough opportunity for people to practice spoken English. Mm. It's very content heavy. It's very extended writing heavy. And we don't get a chance to refine the craft of communicating effectively. So we teach children how to critique Victorian literature and then we put them in job interviews and they don't know what to do because we haven't taught them. Right. And um, can I write it, this down somehow? <laughs> Instead of like, you know, like I can write you a letter. I can't just, I just can't speak in front of you. That's all. <laughs> yeah. And, and we, I don't want to say we're setting children up to fail. I think, I think that's, that's unfair criticism, but right. we definitely don't do enough. So, so every, every school I've been part of, I've, I've trained either the teachers or I've run after school clubs or I've run competitions, uh, debate clubs. And, and I've always tried to focus the enrichment opportunities that I offer around spoken English because I, I now see its value. Okay. And, and so people go to school, they don't get taught how to speak. They go to university, they have to do a couple of presentations and they're terrified, but they somehow stumble through. And then somebody can get 10, 15 years down the road into their career, whether they're working in IT or, or behind the desk or they're a scientist or a job that doesn't require them to stand up and speak very often. And then all of a sudden they have to stand up and speak in front of an audience or deliver a conference or whatever it is. And that's when they ring me. That's when they ring me up or, or drop me an email and say, I'm preparing for this big presentation in three weeks time. I'm terrified. And I'm sat there thinking I've got to somehow rectify 20 years of missed opportunities in three weeks. Right. Right. <laughs> and that's where I step in and, and I love working with people, but I think, they're not always to blame. It's not always their own fault. It's a product of the world that they've grown up in that just hasn't given them the chance to combat that anxiety soon enough. So there's uh, there's two things I'd like to uh, just pause a bit with before we kind of go a bit further um, and and ask you about. One thing is uh, <clears throat> Barack Obama. You know, it was a. I think for for our generation, he was a generational political talent, and there were was just so much uh, hope in so many areas connected with him. Uh, but in either case, it, it was something where even people that usually would just be bored at listening to political speeches were actually became interested. It was like, wow, this is, whether or not you agree with it, this is powerful, right? He was a, a generational political talent as far as the his speaking ability, his, his eloquence went. Um, mm. What was... But that's, this was already, this was back in two thousand eight to two thousand twelve during the time when you were still in the or two thousand until two thousand sixteen I guess you had speeches but um, mm. where you still were still kind of in the in the depths of I don't know, despair but in the depths of kind of like I just have no chance um, mm. of of speaking uh, like that in ever in my life um, mm. did you did you still did you do you think he was still an influence then or do you think it was just an influence now kind of when you've become more uh, concerned with public speaking and kind of 
looking more for models? That's a really good question. I, I think you, you can't look back at 2008 to 12 and not be inspired by what you saw because because it was a landmark change and a shift in, in America and, and by default the world. So I, I think I remember looking back on it and thinking, what an amazing thing. But but at the time, you know, I, I how old was I in, in so six, 16? Yeah. So I, I was at the age where I think I saw what was going on. I think I was news aware. So I, I saw it, read about it, but I just think I was so far removed from even seeing the need to speak in public, let alone the desire or the, the ability that I think I, I remember seeing Barack Obama and thinking, gosh, that's amazing, but it's something I'll never do. It's right. something I'll, I'll never need because I'm not a politician or I'm not a president. And I'm grateful not to have to think about it because I'm just at school right now or at college or whatever. Right. And I think how it was a distant, you know, inspiration of in terms of what it achieved, but I didn't see how it related to me at that time. And then I think later on down the road, as I gradually recognized the need for effective communication, I think I've, maybe the seed had been planted. I think I found myself coming back to that speech and going, wow maybe this is not just a distant influence. Maybe this is an accessible influence, somebody I can learn from and within my own way start to mirror. And and again, I think I planted another seed, but again, it wasn't until just last year when I had that presentation and, and actually tried to put it into practice that I realized just how powerful it can be and just how much you can learn from even the greatest, despite thinking that they're so far ahead of you. Because I, th- I think that uh, just... Uh, in my mind at least I think uh, he is perhaps one of the most recent examples um, and for our generation that where you kind of get the sense that speaking actually can change something you know what I mean like actually that this that dynamis as they say in, in, in Greek that, that uh, public speaking actually has a force not just for very often it's about, you know, like the, the Queen's speech and so on, just upholding whatever is there, but also changing things and making making kind of the land shift under you to a certain extent, uh, remaking uh, the political uh, landscape in some ways. Yeah, I mean, the, the big example I think of for that one is, is Churchill's address, um, you know, in, in and around Dunkirk in the Second World War when he right. uses um, the, the ascendance and, and the repetition of we will fight them. You know, yeah, actually, so, yeah, I was actually thinking, I've, I've just been in preparation for this, I've just been looking a bit on, uh, at uh, uh, Rhetoric Ad Herenium, which I think is the best classical source for stylistic flourishes, mm-hmm. um, and <clears throat> I thought I'd I'd, uh, I'd talk about a few of those, just the, the figures of diction that he talks about there. Uh, one is uh, Apanaphora, or Anaphora, what we will call them today is when one of the same word forms successive beginnings for phrases expressing different ideas, right? We shall fight them on the beaches. We shall fight them on the landing grounds. We shall fight them in the fields and in the, in the streets. We shall fight them in the, in the hills. We shall never surrender, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then there's the antistrophe, where it repeats, repeats not the first word, but the last one. Uh, this is from John F. Kennedy. <clears throat> for no government is better than the men who compose it. And I want the best, and we need the best. And we deserve the best, right? Mm. And, and then you have like an interlacement where you use both of them. <laughs> so um, the time for the healing of wounds has come. The time to bridge the chasms that divide us 
has come. That's Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the transplacement, where the same word is um, reintroduced in different ways, sometimes as a subject, sometimes as a verb, sometimes as, you know, or in, in different ways. Like, many miss the opportunity of a lifetime because they don't seize it in the lifetime of the opportunity. Uh, one who has nothing in life more desirable than life cannot cultivate a virtual or, or virtuous life because just uh, maintaining life becomes the, the highest goal. Mm. Um, and then there's this uh, antithesis that you've already talked about. It's a style built upon contraries where Churchill, again, also used this quite a bit. The battle, uh, the battle of France is over. The battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this contest lays the whole future of our empire and so on. And he says, the whole might and fury of the enemy must very soon be poured upon us. Hitler knows that he must break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may be, move, may be free to move forward into broad, broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail... Then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have loved and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age. You know, you see, like the there's language there that that has power to it. Um, there's Very also the there's also uh, a lot of this predates even like the just the classification of rhetoric, or well, not predates, but. You see some of this in like the Old Testament or the very old ancient script, ancient scripts. Um, you have apostrophe, which is uh, expressing grief or indignation by means of an address of some man, city, place, or object. You have this. You know, Jesus does this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy, thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Mm. So there's just um, a lot in the the area of style often has to do with these you often have the kind of the larger structure of your speech maybe set out although that could also it be influenced by by those uh, um, those figures or dic- figures of diction figures of thought um, but the way you then kind of ornament your language with this with these um, stylistic flourishes it really makes it more much more powerful um, mm. and uh, you, you may notice a difference just from listening to it. it you don't hear so many examples at the moment and, and I'm saddened by current politics because a lot of it, it, it seems to be mudslinging and accusations and occasionally you know a little catchy slogan or tagline but as a general trend you don't hear that kind of stirring language very often now. I mean, I think it, the problem is that uh, perhaps we are in an age of cynicism, right? And mm. some call it perhaps, uh, you know, we want to be objective and there's this kind of sense that we want a, a scientific language that's, you know, that doesn't appeal that much to emotions and ideals. Um, but uh, but it, it is a bit, um, yeah, it, it is a bit sad that we don't have uh, that many uh, people in public life to l- raise our gaze a little bit, you know, um, and I guess the un- there's the virtue to the understated. Uh, I, I will say that the Barack Obama style politics. I'm not quite sure it's even suited for 
for British life unless you have a specific moment in British life where there is a contest of of uh, powers like with Churchill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because there's one thing, the speeches obviously um, were wonderful, but in a moment of just talking about labor strikes or other things like that, it would have seen, seemed grandiose, perhaps mm-hmm. uh, a bit inflated. You know, you, you wouldn't get the kind of sense. It was a sense of, of national destiny and national doom that he was able to give this. So in some ways, the moment creates the speech also, right? The rhetorical situation uh, calls for a certain kind of speaking, a certain kind of uh, a certain kind of expression. Well, and, and the best example of that that I've always loved is Robert F. Kennedy's speech shortly following the assassination of Martin Luther King. Um, I think I think as far as I recall, he found out on the way there that Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Right, um, and it's only it's only a five minute speech, but the impact it had on the people in that area in terms of the peaceful protesting and and mm. subduing the violence and and calming and soothing is just remarkable. And and you listen to the structures and you just think that's that's inspired. Mm. So. Uh, <clears throat> And so we've talked a bit about now about the about style, um, and then uh, obviously you've got your speech, you've prepared what you want to say, uh, but very often people go for. I wrote a beautiful speech, and I can't remember any of it, and I just ended up reading it, and people didn't get enjoy it because they felt like they were being read at, or or I thought I had it, and then I came up on the stage, and then everything went blank, and mm-hmm. so. How did you work on that, and uh, how how did you able and what do you do now in order to, um, like, how much do you memorize? How much do you have scripted? How much do you actually write out beforehand? Because you were able to recall that Barack Obama speech just from memory. That's quite impressive. That Barack Obama esque speech that you made. <laughs> yeah, I, I I work well with patterns. Uh, so in, in a previous life, before I got married and had children, um, I, I, was, I was a piano player uh, and, and learning music, I would memorize it. So I, I seem to have a bit of a memory for structures and patterns and the ability to recall them. And music itself is structured with, with different sections and, and right. melodies and textures. And Scales, I think that, that definitely helped. It gave me an underpinning in terms of, being able to retain my memory and, and remember how things fit together. But in terms of speaking, when I started, my speeches were articles recited. <laughs> so I would write them out in full, in paragraphs, right. uh, and put, them on, put them on my blog, on my website. And then that, that article would be the speech. And when I stood up on the stage, I was trying to recite the article verbatim. And first of all, that's a, terrific feat of memory in itself. You're trying to recite maybe six, seven, eight hundred words. But the problem that you get with that is it's cold and it's lifeless and it's wooden. There's no personality to it because all your mind is trying to do is remember the next paragraph or the next sentence. It's not looking around the room trying to make eye contact. I think uh, Chris Anderson, the the curator of of TED, TED Talks, um, he he calls that the uncanny valley. Like uh, it's similar to the... um, the the kind of early um, GI or kind of motion uh, uh, animations where you, they tried to make something lifelike and instead they created something just terrifying because it was close to human but not quite human. 
And yeah. so they kind of stuck in the uncanny valley where it would be almost better if they didn't go for human likeness at all. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. And and you know, if if all you're trying to do is remember it word for word, you you're in your own head and you're not looking around the room. And and a speech is to be delivered to the audience, mm. not for your own mental benefit. So I, I got to a point where I thought I can't keep doing this because I'm I'm just remembering words on a page and it's it's not it's not helping my audience. There's no connection with them. I've got to try and get to probably a point got where some I, feedback on that too, right? From Toastmasters. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, yeah. They did talk about uh, trying to be a bit more free and a bit less inhibited and, and gave me some specific strategies to work on. So using things like PowerPoint slides or note cards just to give the prompts, but then the bits in between become a bit more free. So I gradually worked up to having a, a PowerPoint picture or mm. an image for each section of my speech so I was able to then talk about the main sections, but it was it was structured, but it was it was then giving me more opportunity to articulate it in my own words. Uh, I never really used note cards. I didn't I didn't get round to that, but I, I used the PowerPoint and the clicker. And I think holding the clicker gave me some comfort, not fidgeting with my hands or anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then gradually got to a point where I realised that the greatest power in a speech is is your own story, and if it's your story. Why on earth would you read it? Why on earth would you have it on a PowerPoint slide? It's, mm. it's you. And if, if it's you and it's your story and your experience, there is nobody better or more aptly placed to tell it than you. So I got to a point where I thought, I need to give, deliver a speech where I tell my own story, some of my own experiences in my own words, without having to rely on anything other than my own ability to retell the story. Mm. And so I was probably about two years into speaking before I managed to do that. And I wouldn't say it was it was by any means a, a powerful speech, but I, I felt a great sense of achievement that I've been able to stand up and hold an audience's attention for between five to ten minutes by just talking about myself and, and things I'd experienced and things I knew about. Mm. Um, and that was where I, I realised that speaking could find a natural flow. But that was obviously with the using a narrative structure, and that obviously is is uh, easier than as you say, the article structure or the the more abstract um, exposition. Um, but uh, how do you go on from there to kind of go from, you know, five to ten minutes and then you have now, what, you said 75 minutes presentation or something like that? Or what was it? The, or the, quite, a, quite, a, quite long presentations now that you, you're able to do. Yeah, so the longest one I did was was a, a bespoke training session for, for teachers that I did back in March of, of uh, this year, just before lockdown, a couple of weeks before lockdown. And that was to about eight, 80 teachers, and it was yeah, it was an hour and a quarter. Mm. And I started that by by giving the context and telling my own story about where I'd come from in terms of my my speaking, and then went into some strategies that teachers specifically can use in their classrooms to engage students and and the basic principles of public speaking that I'd picked up, and then how you can use language to influence and um, empower your students. So I, I went through all of that, but. But, it, but again, that was something that I had slides for, so I, I knew the sections that were coming up. Right, because that's the, the the longer ones. You want to be able to have some information up there and so on, some keywords. Yeah, but, but I mean, I, I was pleased that I got, I've got that one videoed and I've, I've put it back on my YouTube channel and and I have watched it back once or twice just to, to go back through the notes again and, and the structure. But I was pleased that I was able to manage an hour and a quarter engaging with my audience, asking them questions, 
uh, making them laugh a couple of times. Now, I, I am the least funny person known to man, but, but even to make an audience smile or a little chuckle just lets you know that you're doing the right things. And right. It's that affirmation that keeps you going. Right. Instead of just uh, no feedback at all, that's kind of the worst. You just don't know until they either boo you off the stage or they clap whether you've done a good job, right? <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, and then uh, you've been working on a couple of other uh, uh, memory devices, right? That you've tried out. Uh, you talked about the, the memory palace. Yeah, so I, I, I use this one now when I'm telling elements of my story, partly to, partly to remember key details and numbers um, and dates and things, because I know that sometimes when you're on a stage and you're trying to remember numbers, dates or figures, they can be particularly tricky to get your, your head around. And, and also to check emotion. Uh, so I, I try to contain the speech within the memory palace. And, and when, when I'm delivering the speech, it helps me know how to convey the emotions I'm feeling to my, to my audience. So I think the best way I do this is I give you a brief example. Just, uh, just first of all, I'd like to just uh, explain a little bit what the, what the memory palace technique is. Uh, yeah. it's, it's actually, uh, from, again, from classical rhetoric and they would often have like two hour long speeches that they could pull off by heart, but they, uh, <clears throat> it's called the, the, mem- the method of loci or loki meaning, meaning method of place. And the memory palace is the es- essence of it is that you find some place that you're so familiar with, um, that you just, you can, mem- you can visualize almost everything of it or you just feel the different rooms when you're walking through them, like your you like your house or uh, other places that you've just that you're just so familiar with that it connects strongly and 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 very very clearly with your with your emotions or with your with your memory, and then you put other things in those rooms uh, and place things in those rooms uh, in order to be able to go back through the different rooms or f- through that through that palace and pick up those different pieces of information as you as you, as you go through it and because it's connected with something that's so stuck in your memory those things also become connected to those rooms i guess it, the is the theory of it right yeah it's it's something to hang your your memories on and and i remember watching somebody on a on a video once who'd memorized an entire deck of cards uh, and he was talking about how he did it and he, he tells himself a narrative with the deck of cards but he, he said also sometimes one other technique i tried is I imagine I'm walking through the, the rooms of my house and the cards are placed on different locations in my house. So he's got not just the, the image of the card, but the image of where it's placed in his house and it makes that memory more vivid. So he's, he's almost walking around the house, tracking down the 52 cards, mm. um, which I think is an extraordinary way to do it. And, and he described it. And I didn't realise that what he was doing was describing this ancient classical technique. Uh, but I thought, oh, maybe I can apply that to when I'm telling stories and I can use some of this to help me with, with my speeches. So again, it's another one of those things where I've tried it, found it to be quite helpful for me without realizing its origins. And now I'm, I'm just being informed of, you know, where it comes from. And, and that's part of the excitement of, of discovering the, uh, the learning journey. See me on the other hand, I've never really tried it out in a speech. I've just been able to do it to memorize numbers or, or things like that. But uh, mm-hmm. so I am excited to, to get a demonstration or hear a bit about how you've been able to use that to uh, to memorize a speech that you made. So I'm going to try and go back and forth between the the lo- location of my house and the part of the story that I'm I'm going to tell. I'm going to go for a, a brief 
section of, of a part of my journey that uh, that really was it was in the darker time, but it, it helped to shape my need for communication. Um, so in the in the start of this story, I'm sitting in the front room of my house on a brown leather sofa, and I'm looking across at the opposite wall where I have two lights on the opposite wall, um, small hanging lights, and the lights are warm. They're yellow. And it's it's a warm front room. It's a comfortable place to be, and and it's it's a very relaxed atmosphere in the, in the house. I'm sitting by myself. I'm all alone, and that creates the the mood that I want to set at the start of my speech. And this is where I start to talk about um, the the days leading up to the birth of of my my first son. And I'd struggled with a, a number of different emotions in the lead up, but but shortly before he was born. I, I remember just feeling a sense of quiet excitement, hopeful optimism that I was going to become become a father, and and this was quietly exciting to me. I've never I've never been a very outward, extroverted person, so me sitting quietly contemplating by myself is very much how it feels for me on the inside. I feel this kind of warm contentment, and I express that to the audience, and I say I was quietly um, and and positively looking forward to, to the birth of my son. Um, and then my uh, my wife appears at my side on the sofa. She walks in and sits down. And that's the moment where I, I discuss with her what we're looking forward to. We share some of our hopes and dreams for our, for our family life. And we uh, share just that quiet moment of, of anticipation. My wife then falls asleep on the sofa and I stand up and I walk through to the kitchen of our house at the back of the house. The kitchen lights are off and it's dark and the window of the kitchen near the back door is, is open and it's letting in a, a cold breeze. And that's where the, the story changes. That's where the atmosphere in the room changes. And that's where everything starts to feel dark and cold. And the tone of my voice, the pace of my speaking and the pauses I take between my sentences start to become more pronounced because I'm building an atmosphere of, of suspense within the story. So this part of the story, when I've walked into the kitchen and the room grows dark, I tell my audience that it was the middle of the night. It was 12.30 and the darkness of my bedroom was illuminated by my phone starting to ring. And I answer the phone and it was a nurse at St. James's Hospital in Leeds telling us that there was a space for my wife to be inducted. So we went to the hospital and the induction took place. And, and I take them through that, that part of the process, obviously, when we get up to um, the, the hours into the birth. So we go through that and it's, it's now 2.55 in the afternoon. I'm standing in my kitchen in my memory palace and I look to my left and there is a wall with a clock on the wall and the clock is pointing to 2.55 in the afternoon. That's how I remember that my son was born at 2.55. And underneath the clock on the kitchen wall is painted the, the following words, Elias Thomas Jeffrey Day, 22nd of January, 2016, 10 pounds, 14 ounces. That's how I remember my, my son, the day he was born, the time and how much he weighed. Now, it becomes a little bit more vivid because the the writing on that wall is painted in blood. 
And the reason it's painted in blood is because my son was born at 255. And he was a big boy, very heavy boy. And my wife is not a, a, a tall woman. She's five foot six. So she gave birth amidst many complications to the, uh, the child, the size that he was, to Elias. Elias, there were some complications. The, the cord was wrapped around his neck. I had, we had to deal with that. And they cleared his airways and he cried. And that was a massive relief. And he was handed over to us. And I looked down at my wife to speak to her. And I watched her eyes roll upwards into her head and her eyes close. And she was unconscious. And that's why she's unconscious in the couch in the front room behind me, because I'm now all alone. And the reason that the writing on the kitchen wall is in blood is because I, I don't want to go into too many details, but um, my wife lost uh, about two and a half liters of blood. And for nearly two days, I was not sure whether she would live or she would die. And so I'm standing in that hospital room amidst the frenzied activity of doctors trying to save my wife's life. And I'm holding a 10 pound, 14 ounce baby. So I'm in a room full of people, but I've never felt more alone in my entire life. And there was a, a moment where I, I seriously wondered if I would just be walking out of the hospital with a child and no wife. And, and that's why the atmosphere and the, and the temperature of the room is so different from the front room to the kitchen, because we, we've enjoyed the, the anticipation, the lead up to the experience, but I paint such a stark contrast to the experience of, of the uncertainty and the desperation and the fragility of that moment where all of that activity took place. I moved from the kitchen and I moved to back through the front room where my wife is still asleep. She's not come back into the store yet. And I stand at the bottom of our stairs and I look up the stairs and there's a long way to climb. And I'm feeling tired and I'm exhausted. And I don't know if I even have the energy to make that climb. And that's following the birth, following when we traveled back home. Uh, and that's when my, my wife was going through an intensive recovery period. And I, although she's on the couch and she's now sleeping, she's resting, I'm alone and I'm looking up the stairs thinking I can't climb this on my own. And that's where my communication anxiety came back because I was suffering with quite severe depression, as you can imagine. And I didn't know where to turn or who to talk to. At that particular moment, there's a knock on the door, the front door just behind me, which is at the bottom of the stairs. And I turn around and I open the door and there is a, a woman standing there. And she introduces herself as a professional counsellor. Would she be able to come in and speak with me? And we, we go in and back through the front room into a separate room, a quiet room at the back of the house, away from the front room of the kitchen, where there is, again, dim lighting and it's slightly warmer. I can't quite see everything yet, but there's just enough light for me to see this, this woman who sits down opposite me and we start to talk. And that was when I went through the experience of professional counselling. That was where I went out to those offices twice a week for about six months and worked through and battled and wrestled with all the emotions and everything that I was struggling with. And then I go back home um, I, from the counselling session, but in, in my memory palace, the counsellor 
uh, stands up and leaves and closes the front door. And again, I'm standing at the bottom of those stairs looking up into my house. And, and it, that happens quite a few times. And I get to the point where I, I'm gradually thinking I'm still not strong enough yet. I'm still not strong enough yet. And eventually there's a time where I think I think I can start to make this climb now. And I start to climb the stairs, but I'm crawling up those stairs. And it's a challenge and every step hurts and it's it's a battle. But when I finally reach the top, there's that sense of now I'm free. Now I can go where I want to in my house. And there's a sense of satisfaction and a sense of empowerment. So I walk back down the stairs, I open the front door and I walk outside and I feel the breeze on my face and I see the sunlight for the first time. And there's now a world out there and, and it's free. So I go through that story and I go through the memory palace to go through the experiences and I take my audience on that journey of where I went and how deep I had to go, how far I had to climb and then finally breaking out of my house that had kept me prisoner for so long and into the sunlight of a free world where I can now go and I can have an impact on other people's lives. So that's how I do it. That's how I structure it when I'm on the stage and, and I am walking and sitting and doing those things in my house when I'm describing the different situations that I'm going through. That's what's happening in your in your mind as as you're doing that. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Is there one of the is there one section where that you could take us through, like one of the places at the bottom of the stairs, for perhaps, or where, um, or perhaps just the beginning. <clears throat> So I'll I'll tell I'll tell a small part of the story, but I'll tell it as I as I deliver it on stage, mm-hmm. with what's in my mind in terms of in terms of my house. Yeah. So I'll do the bit where um, we go to the hospital and I'm in the kitchen and then I turn and I see um, the the writing on the wall and, and everything. Standing in a hospital room of St. James's Hospital in Leeds, everything in my life changed. I'd stepped across a line that there was no going back from. And I've heard people say before that the best way out is through. But I didn't know if I would ever make it through this experience that I was now having. It was 2.55 p.m. on the 22nd of January, 2016, when my son was born. But when I say born, new life was almost met with the end of another. As the nurse handed him over to me and my wife, I felt a surge of the hope and the optimism and the anticipation that we discussed in the weeks leading up to his birth. But as I looked down to share this moment with my wife, I recognised that there would be no such moment. I watched her eyes close And I suddenly found myself in the midst of frenzied activity as doctors and anaesthetists rushed into the room to try and save her life because she'd lost more blood than anyone should. I was in the middle of a crowd of people 
but I'd never felt so alone. I felt a cold breeze coming through the window from behind me. I was forced backwards into a chair and sat down, holding my son. And as his life was just beginning, my wife's life was slipping away. It was as though I was standing on the plug hole and someone had pulled the plug, spiraling downwards out of control into the darkness of a life I never imagined I'd have. And even in the following weeks and days, when she finally did open her eyes and finally did get to come home and finally did manage to gain some of her strength, I knew that I was dealing with something in the darkest corners of my mind that I would never be able to resolve alone. But with the help of a carefully chosen counsellor and through conversations long and painful, I was able to begin making the climb back towards freedom. And in that dimly lit office, on cold winter nights, making the drive to and from the house. Every meeting gave me another ounce of strength with which to make the next step of the climb. Until gradually, I was finally able to see the light again. So I've gone through that section of the story, but I've, I've, in my head as I've done it, I've been imagining my house and the things I described earlier. Thank you. That was, um, <clears throat> that was, uh, that was a gift. Thank you for, for sharing that. That was, uh, I was there. <laughs> I was there. Uh, it's I, another one of those things where that was another moment where the communication anxiety kicked in because I knew that I wasn't going to get through that experience on my own unless I talked to somebody and I held it inside for about six months and and I found after six months that I was just not coping um, physically, mentally, emotionally, I just wasn't coping and terrified as I described to you before that I was to pick up a phone or stand on a stage in school or go on a first date that was the toughest one of all. Um, and, and luckily I'd started attending Toastmasters by then. So he was born and I didn't go to the next Toastmasters meeting. And I'll tell you what saved me was a combination of people from that Toastmasters club messaging me and saying, how are you? And listening to the answers and a combination of somebody saying to me, you need to go and see somebody. And don't wait for work to try and sort out a funded counsellor. He said that the money that you'll spend on counselling in the long term might just save your life. Um, and I took him seriously because I, I knew enough about the person telling me to know that they'd struggled with mental health as well. So I was able to, to take just enough courage from the experiences I'd already had 
to get in touch with somebody. And and I'll tell you, the, the value of having a space where you can just go and have somebody listen and tell you you're not crazy, but you're just struggling was was what made all the difference uh, for me. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly struggling with public speaking or going through experiences where you suffer with your mental health, um, the, the cure is to talk. So the, uh, I guess a couple of things that I just want to ask you also then about the, uh, um, just to just to move on again to the uh, to the next part was is obviously the delivery. You have the you've got the memory, you got the style, you got the you got the content. Um, what's what's some of the things the suggestions and the advice for for delivery that has helped you the most? You know with use of voice, uh, body language, kind of having like a presence in the room. I think my experience as a teacher helps having a battle-hardened voice to get the attention of teenagers. <laughs> so it's, it's something I've had to practice over a few years. But uh, no, I, I think for this, I, I go back to music. And I think of beautiful music that I listen to. I, I like a lot of classical music. And if you listen to a really well-made piece of classical music, there are moments where it's quicker. There are moments where it's slower. There are moments where the temperature is warm and in a major key. There are moments when it it slows down and and it hits a minor key. And there are also moments of profound silence. Mm. And I think I, I refer to a speaker called Julian Treasure, who's fantastic. And something that he says is the human voice is the instrument that we all have to learn to play. And I think that's such a powerful metaphor because a well-delivered speech is like a piece of music. You know, rhetoric gives it the patterns and the textures, but your voice and the way that you use it gives it the, the texture and the timbre and the pace and the dynamics and the range. So I, I'm a massive fan of things like breathing and warm-up exercises because I think they help you to warm up the vocal cords and diaphragm to give that instrument more space in which to work and produce more resonant sound. Mm -hmm. But then I think it's, it's a case of do the words match the voice. You know, the number of times you, you, you sit and you hear somebody um, say, Oh, thank you. That was really helpful. I appreciate that. I mean, the emotion and the feeling might be there inside, but the voice has absolutely no resemblance to the sentiment of the sentence whatsoever. Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, when, when you're delivering a speech, you know, you have to really give as clear and, and connected a message as you possibly can between your, your voice and you. So it has to be something of a, I'm not going to say a performance, but it, but it has to have some emotional investment into it. Right. Um, so there was a reason why when they delivered that section of the speech just now, it was slow and it was measured and it was, I don't deliver all my speeches that way. People are bored, stiff or depressed, but, but they have <laughs> to get the emotion of that section. Right. And all of a sudden I get to the other side and I can say, now I'm empowered. I feel inspired. I'm so grateful for people who, uh, but, but if you go to one extreme too much and you don't vary enough, uh, people get bogged down in it. So there has to be variation for people to be taken on that journey with you um and that again that comes back to what i love about Barack obama because he's so natural at just the, the end of that speech like we've had in the introduction was was punched out with with real conviction 
But there are moments where he drops the volume and the pace right down. And he says, I, I, was, I was never the likeliest candidate for this office. Now, if, if he delivered that as, I was never the likeliest candidate, it's a completely, <laughs> different, completely different feeling. Right. He drops it so that you think, wow, he recognizes. And, and I, yeah, you connect with it. So it's, it's about being able to think, what emotion do I want to create within my audience? And how is that most appropriate? On the earlier episode where you had the guy who was running for office and he was like, I have a BA in communicate. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, okay. This guy, I mean, wrong register. <laughs> right. And it comes back to register. Um, right. So yeah. And, 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 I think and he's, it's, it's one of those where if everything's important, nothing's important, right? Yes. After a while, yes. if someone keeps streaming at you every single word and every single word is very important, then nothing becomes important because you can't recognize the difference. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, right. when, when I hand out something to my students and I highlight the whole extract, I say, highlight the key bits and I highlight the whole extract. I'm thinking, well, what's highlighted? Right, exactly. What's, in, what's important? Nothing. You know, you've got, you have to pick something mm. that deserves the emphasis. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, and the kind of the, the taking, taking it down a bit, kind of the calming down and then kind of building it up. Uh, I think a lot of these patterns we have naturally in our mind, right? I mean, we've all experienced, for example, the... The, you know, you run over the finish line. <sighs> and then mm. it's like, and the winner is, you know, right? The, this kind of like, the, this little pause before the storm, you know, this, uh, or this, uh, uh, this build up to climaxes, like, you know, jump off a cliff into the water and you have, goes faster and faster and faster, and poof, right? Yeah. This, this kind of build of climaxes. We, we experience that as aesthetically pleasing um, just in our, you know, experience of a physical experience of sports, of, of other things, right? Uh, mm. Kenneth Burke talks a lot about that. And then so to, in some ways, literary form or, or form in, in, in art is just to kind of transpose those structures into a speech, for example, right? Mm. Yeah, you, you've, you've got to try and create a visual experience for your audience so that they can feel and see in their own mind what it is you're describing. And I remember somebody saying once that when you retell a story, and storytelling is so powerful, but he said, when you tell a story to audience, you're not retelling the story, you're reliving the story. Right. And so when I told you that story just now, I, I was there. I, I saw the setting. I saw where I was. I saw who was there, how I felt. Now, my memory is patchy in places because it's, it's a traumatic experience and I don't remember absolutely everything. But the bits I do remember are so vivid. And when, when you're telling that story to people, you, you have to be prepared to be so vulnerable that you confront those emotions again. Now, after two, two and a half years of, of counseling and working with people and, and I, I'm controlled enough to be able to tell that story and hold it together but i don't hold back on the words but what i am able to do is create the emotion for my audience feel that emotion again for myself and, and visualize it but i'm able to process it better now mm. and i think that's that's one of the key things is that you being vulnerable and courageous in a speech is an act of service for your audience and, and whenever you hold back, you do your audience a disservice. Mm. And, it, and it gets, it takes a long time to have the courage to be able to share your, your most vulnerable moments. But I've never, ever watched a speech 
and seen somebody do that and not felt huge amounts of respect for their courage. So we, we often worry about how we're going to be received, but I have always admired people that are courageous enough to share their story. I guess that's also uh, kind of the key to, you know, talk about charismatic speaking, right? Is this kind of authenticity, this, uh, because you, when you do open up like that, then you, you allow people into a space where they feel a connection, right? Mm. And then that's, that becomes this authenticity, this, uh, this meeting a person rather than a structure just by itself, um, is what is what makes a public a speaking in public into a, a real communication between individuals yeah. rather rather than just uh, you know meeting words or meeting perhaps a compelling story but you, you don't really meet the person behind the story unless unless there's some of that emotional investment there i guess yeah and that, and that's where the balance of, of aristotle's magic triangle comes in um, of, of ethos, logos, and pathos. Unless you've kind of got a sweet spot of all three, you struggle to connect with everybody. Mm. You know, and sometimes you get very logos-heavy speeches that are data-driven. But sometimes you find yourself asking the question, well, what's the story behind the data? Where are the faces behind that data? And why does this person care about it? Yes. And, yeah. why, and why should I care about it? <laughs> yeah. And that's that's where everything everything knits together. So, yeah, I, I try and make sure that I've got a bit of everything. Uh, of of the logic, the reasoning, but also the passion, the emotion, the story, mm. and I think a combination of all those things. And so, we'll, we'll get everyone at some point. What I think is some is very interesting about this uh, exchange that we're having is that you're a um, award winning public speaker that is kind of um, dabbling in theory. I guess you could say. <laughs> it, would you say it that way? Because yeah. uh, you, you, right now you're consuming a lot of rhetorical theory. You told me, right? You, you're starting with you're doing Aristotle's rhetoric. Uh, you're, you know, th- these uh, getting into some of the canon of uh, rhetorical studies. Uh, whereas yeah. I'm, I'm a, I'm a someone who just uh, has been devouring the theory, <laughs> and I'm, I'm dabbling in the practice. Yeah. So when when you come back on my podcast, you can give me all the theory that I'm missing out on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness! Uh, how many hours and days and weeks do you have? <laughs> Two weeks over Christmas. Fill them all if you want. Right. <laughs> well, I need to see my family too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this. Uh, what do you, what do you find when you go to Aristotle now as a pra- practitioner? Um, you know what what's uh, what do you find is is in it for you? Do you find sometimes is like well you know obviously that's true or really is that, that the case that's not what i've experienced or or whoa i never thought about that like this before what what's uh what what's the value to you of going to this rhetorical theory i'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you what it's done i'll tell you what it's done for me hmm? i've got to a point where i've realized that all the major decisions that i've made in my life have been responses to rhetoric from one person or another So, for example, when I went to that first Toastmasters meeting, in fact, even before that, I'll take you back before that, when I was sitting in that front room of that bungalow when I was first married and I was absolutely despondent, thinking, how am I ever going to have a life of meaning, purpose and fulfillment if I can't uh, communicate with anyone? My wife sat me down and she said, I know 
this is a struggle for you. I know this is hard. I know it's not going to be easy, but I'm here for you. I will support you. And I am committed. And, and that just struck something in my heart and in my mind. And, and that was pathos. She was connecting with me emotionally mm. and she was persuading me to take action because she had a belief. Um, she, she gave me self-efficacy. So that was pathos. And then I went to the first Toastmasters meeting after a while and, and I met those wonderful people again who comforted and reassured me. But then they said, well, this is the Toastmasters program. These are the pathways you can go on. This is how it's going to fit. This is how much it's going to cost you to join. And it was a very reasonable sum of money. Even I could afford it at the time. Mm. And logically, that made sense to me. That made sense to what I wanted to achieve, where I wanted to go. And I also watched those speakers stand up on the stage and capture the audience's attention and tell me they'd been doing it for three years, five years, 10 years, and this is how far they'd come. And they had credibility, so they had ethos. Mm. So every time I've come up against a decision that I've had to make, there has been rhetoric from a source, a person, an organization. And now when I'm trying to scale my business and generate new clients and help them, you know, I, I have to spend money on, on website design and different things. And, and I'm looking around making decisions about my business. I, I need somebody to connect with my purpose. I need somebody to say, it will help you do and achieve this. And this is the cost. And this is, and, and if those things emotionally connect with me and logically make sense for my business and where I want it to go, then I'll go with it. And if I can't justify the numbers or I can't justify how it makes me feel about my journey and where I want my, my ideas to go, then I won't. So in one form or another, we are persuaded by rhetoric. And one of the dangers that I think we're facing is do we know how people are using rhetoric to persuade us? And are we being persuaded or manipulated? And I think that's something that you keep coming back to. And yeah. I think vital. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's one thing I always teach, uh, talk to my students about is like once you've seen these principles and you have understand how they work, you'll see them in operation all around you. <laughs> and so it's come to the point now where I just, I can't turn it off. You know, I, <laughs> I always, I, I listen to the radio and anyone speaking, I'll rhetorically analyze what they're doing. And uh, <laughs> but, you buy but, a car and suddenly everyone's got that car and you're like, I, I'm the, I was the first person to buy this car. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> right. You just see like, suddenly you see the traffic. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's, I guess, also the larger picture that for me, theory gave me is that you go from, I guess what what I see you doing in your your story and your work, uh, very much in a kind of humanitarian perspective, that the ability to speak in public and without fear is someone everything, everyone ideally should have some of, right? That that you're you're not a full participant in a democratic society unless you have not just the freedom to speak but also the ability that when injustices or when something happens where you want to support or praise or den or denounce, you feel like you have a voice to do so. Um, and not just on like this angry Facebook screed or something like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Amen to that. I think that's a, that's a wonderful point to make. And, and also for your own professional and personal benefit, you know, you want to have relationships of meaning. You want to be able to apply for a job. And, and go into the interview with confidence. You want to get that job and be able to present with confidence. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, effective public speaking is not being able to take up 
national office. I think effective public speaking is about being able to get to a point in your own journey where you feel you can stand in your own shoes, you can be comfortable in your own skin, and you can tell your story and your message without apologizing to anyone. Mm. And if I can get people to that point, that's why I'm here. And I guess uh, the, the challenge is, for me, as, as an individual, you always are happy when your son or someone you know is able to first drive a car by themselves, right? And that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and then you look at the larger picture and you see the traffic and you see the environment and you're like, oh, this person, I've just put them on a journey where they will be incentivized to contribute to the uh, uh, clim- climactic and uh, and environmental degra- degradation of our planet. <laughs> you know, you, you get to see the kind of the larger, uh, pr- I guess, problematic issues with it too, or, or not problematic, but where where you get into questions of ethics and into questions of um, of the larger environment that your environment that you're a part of creating that these people will be part of creating and the choices and the 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 way weighing of different prob- possibilities and the different uh, means of persuasion how that impacts larger democratic society um, and so there's the sense in which ethics is, or rhetoric is empowerment and then there's also the level where rhetoric is power, right? Uh, and power can never be innocent, as some people say. Um, mm. That there's uh, a, uh, you know, where where you do look at the the trade-offs and the the ways in which a completely, you know, a moving speech and rendition of um, of someone who's struggling through you know, their daughter being murdered and then that being used to scapegoat Mexican immigrants, for example, in the, in the United States as, uh, as, a, as a heart-rending story, pathos really appealing to the emotions, the humanity of people, and using that to whip up their anger against a different population group, for example. Mm. Um, where, where, you know, where the storytelling uh, and the personal connection uh, is not just this, is not innocent anymore. It's uh, now now you're uh, contributing to a building up or a tearing apart of the social fabric. Yes, and and wherever there is, I mean, not not to be very cliche and quote the Spider Man, but where there is power, there is responsibility, right. and, and where we have the ability to do something, we have the the opportunity to to contribute in a in a positive or a negative way, but we have the responsibility to. Um, try and work out what that what that is and I think about things like nuclear power you know you can use that to power people's homes or you can use it to bomb people Mm. Um, you can use social media to talk to your loved ones across the world or you can use it to derail political campaigns Uh, wherever there is something that has a an ability to influence it can be used for good or for bad and and I hope that within my own circle of influence I will use the power that I've I've discovered so far to to help other people Mm. Um, I I don't hesitate to say that I I am a little bit selective about the people I choose to work with um, in terms of what they're trying to achieve. So, you know, if somebody comes to me and says, I want to write a speech to uh, convince people to smuggle arms into the country, my answer will probably be no. (laughs) Um, But if somebody comes to me and says, I want to, you know, 
reassure my employees that during a difficult restructuring process of my company, um, they will be looked after and we will do all we can to protect them. Absolutely. Mm. So it's about how these people are going to use it and, and what they come to you with. Now, the challenge with that is obviously when you align on a values basis with somebody, you teach them the skills and you teach them, give them the tools. They have the responsibility then to go and continue to use it responsibly. And we're not necessarily accountable for the choices people make further down the road that we didn't foresee. Mm. Um, And that's something we have to live with. But absolutely, I think it was Aristotle, wasn't it, that said, do you have to use the means um, in a given situation to ethically persuade your audience? Right. And and this, and uh, the because there is an ethics of rhetoric and and uh, uh, I guess the uh, one of the ones that uh, I would say is the modern equivalent of Aristotle, someone who has uh, just contributed a lot to modern rhetorical theory. And a lot of people think that's you know it, it ended with the class classics and classicals, and then that's not, nothing after that. He's he's gigantic in the United States and. Uh, uh, he's passed away now, but his his work it inspires me a lot. And uh, what he does is um, to, he gives me a little of the perspective of also that um, you want to empower your students, uh, but you also, and to a certain extent, you want to instill in them some respect for that power. Uh, to a certain extent, you want to give them the view of their uh, powerlessness uh confronted with uh, these gigantic rhetorical forces of, you know, of media, of different factions and so on, and mm. uh, a realistic expectation as far as what their contribution and within that will be, and uh, some ethical thinking about what do you help to build up and what do you help to, to tear down? Um, mm. What, where do you lend your weight? Um, and um, in a moment where... You know that someone is many voices are calling for a certain kind of speech or a certain kind of rhetorical utterance, um, and if you, as long as you give them what they want in that moment, you will become famous, rich, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, do you then respond to that, or do you do you know uh, to say, uh, you know, an ability to communicate also uh, implies an ability to know when to keep silent or to mm. w- when to refuse. Mm. Um, and that that's also the kind of the uh, the other side of the coin, right? The, mm. the uh, empowering and the power and the powerlessness or the, the fear of that power, the respect for that power. Mm. Yeah, I don't know how much more I can add to that. I think it's profound. Um, <laughs> yeah, fund- fundamentally agree and... Uh, you know, I think at the end of our lives, we will we will be accountable for how we've used the power that we've been given. Um, and, and I think that my, my only hope is that when I get to the end of my life, I can look back and say I did what I could with the power that I had and that I tried to give other people that power and tried to stop as many other people as possible getting to the end of their lives and thinking, if only I'd spoken up, if only I'd used what I could to help others. I mean, mm. so the, there's some there's some ethical principles here, right? Is that mm. that uh, as, as far as there is an ethics of rhetoric, uh, very much it's tied together with democracy and certain democratic ideals, right? That mm. uh, that it is an intrinsic good for 
if there is a public discussion for it to be broad, for people to feel like they are being heard, whether or not they agree with the outcome, but they've been part of the discussion. Um, yeah. And for the, for public dis- debate and to for people to feel, uh, f- the more people feel disempowered or feel, feel like they can't participate, that feel excluded without good reason for from that from that room at at say the less people actually feel they are involved in the decision making in a democratic society the less they feel they have a part in it that that this is something that represents them and that's something that is 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 part of what they want to be a part of what they want to support uh that it belongs to them in some way um, yeah so that that's that's definitely one principle of of ethics it, it is. It's, it's one thing to fight the good fight and lose. Um, it's another thing altogether to not ever step foot on the battlefield. Right. So that that's that's an ethical principle, and I think uh, in that sense you are helping uh, because more people are feeling like they can, like this is a world that they can step into, that they can they can participate here, that they they belong there, um, and that their their voice can be heard, and that they do have a voice, not just a theoretical possibility to have a voice uh, so that, that, that would be my that, that would be my sort of keystone message um would, would very much be that i didn't think my story was worth telling um, and gradually as i've had the opportunity to share bits of it with people um i have i have been able to help them and likewise paying that forward people need to hear your story people need to hear your message mm. uh, and uh, I, I guess another 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 point that I'd like that I would make is that there are certain uh, there are certain uh, rhetorical uh, principles that, for one thing, it, to persuade someone and to lead because the other person feels like I actually agree with what that person said. I I didn't come in with that that point of view, but now that I've listened to this. Uh, you know, some people say like, "Whoa, they just like overpower them by rhetorical force." But rhetorical force doesn't work that way. It's much. It's it's not as subtle as that. Uh, you you have a chance to, as when you're digesting food, although you didn't with the chicken, <laughs> you have a chance to spit out something that you feel, you know, that that you don't want to digest that that, that you feel is not well cooked, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that you you we we. When, when we're listening to a, a good speech, I would say, um, and you feel afterwards not just like, wow, that was powerful, but also uh, I agree with that. That was changed in some way. What you've mm-hmm. gone through is an educational process. Your mind has digested information, statistics, um, evidence, um, and has taken based on that a certain stance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it, people aren't as robotic as some people would would make you believe that as long as you have the right kind of trigger words in there, they'll just automatically respond to it. Well, you, you look at the, the power of, of society now. You know, pre- Previously, governments would have made decisions and people would have said, well, okay, we have to live with it. Their government, that's their rhetoric. But now social media is so powerful that counter-rhetoric can be played out and the government can be forced to change their mind if, it, if a movement gets enough power. I, I look at what's recently happened in the UK with uh, the Manchester United and England footballer Marcus Rashford about... Yeah. Uh, Governments change their mind about providing free school meals for children outside of term time. Mm. Uh, you know, depending on how much clout you've got and how far your rhetoric can spread, um, you can you can topple government. And that that's both a power and an extreme danger. Right. 
Right, because there's definitely other people that would want to do similar things, and uh, there have been movements that have not been benign, uh, but have definitely used the power of social media in mm-hmm. the same way. Talk about the, the a lot of the modern populism is fueled by by social media bubbles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the in in different countries in Europe and other and around the world, really. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I guess another thing is also that um, there's the the points where you have in rhetoric that. Uh, it's really a rhetorical fallacy, for example, to do an ad hominem, that where you attack the person rather than the case, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, to do something like a, a a straw man fallacy, right, where instead of actually attacking or 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 trying to argue against the the position of your opponent in a way that mm-hmm. is described the way your opponent would describe it, what you're attacking is a caricature of that person's argument. Um, and not giving the other person a chance to respond because as soon as they respond, they can tear down that straw man, right? Mm. Uh, but instead, of that, so that you know, for example, people talking about all oh, these uh, people, um, the anti anti-immigrant rhetoric very often goes to they just want open borders, right? Nobody has argued for open borders, completely open borders, you know, for you know, except for like very, on very very far fringes. There's always some kind of control mechanism, um, mm. but that's the that's the caricature, right? That's uh, the uh, hyperbole, uh, her- hyperbole, not hyperbole, <laughs> hyperbole, uh, that that people use, and um, that there is an ethical uh, requirement. I would say to um, even the people that you strenuously disagree with, that you feel very very powerfully disagreements with, that you still represent them and their positions um, as as people rather than as animals as hitler did with the jews they were rats you know i called them like that or uh, that uh, you you don't use uh, that you don't use language that tears down the humanity of another person i guess yeah it's a line that should never be crossed and uh, there's a book by simon lancaster i'm about to read who's a phenomenal speech writer called uh, you are not human how words kill yeah, throughout history. I'm talking about the flood of refugees. What do you do with a flood, right? Uh, floods, you put up barriers, you try to get away from it, you, right? Uh, you, that's, uh, it's, if, you're, if you're faced with a flood, that's a natural disaster. That's something that, you, that destroys, that kills, right? Yeah, and there was a metaphor used a couple of years ago about the, uh, the migrant Syri- camp at the Cali. Syrian refugees crisis, um, yeah. And it was referred to as a jungle. And, right. and you think of jungles having wild, dangerous animals that could kill you, and all of a sudden there's there's a propagation of this exaggeration that all migrants are terrorists. Right, right. And it's awful. It should never happen. But the language that we use now can have immense power and can spread faster and sometimes irreversibly. Mm, right. And uh, and and uh, we are being... Uh, uh, the the language on social media, especially around election times, but it, it is quite it is sometimes hard to relate to other people as, as people um, rather than as a position or a caricature that you attack mm. uh, or that you're defending yourselves from. Mm. So in some, in some ways, I guess there's also the, uh, an ethical obligation to, to try to uphold some kind of standards of debate. Uh, there are many things that are possible to do with language that are not ethical to do. Um, that uh, and for for all people, I'd like I wish them to come to this realization that 
yes, you can run a political campaign like this. You can win. Um, but what you've done to the public sphere that you participate in is that you've now made that fair game. And that same will be used against you and in the future and is like using the, the kind of rhetorical means of antithesis where not just building up like hope and fear, but actually uh, an us versus them rhetoric, right? Where they are, they, they are guilty of this. We are the victims. They have done this. We have done, we have just tried to defend ourselves. They are monsters. We are heroes. You know, this, this us, them, especially when used against people in your own country, right? Um, it's, it's a powerful, uh, it is, it is a powerful method because it, it does play on that, uh, in some ways, those same uh, principles of Barack Obama, right? That uh, from the light to the darkness, uh, or darkness and light, um, good and evil. But uh, using that to kind of split a democratic populace uh, into us versus them, it really uh, prepares the way for a civil war, right? Because that's the uttermost realization of a of that rhetorical device if you take it to its uh, extreme and are constant and consistent in in referring to it always as a fight to get for, for us versus them mm. instead of what can bring us together right that's the kind of the the larger encompassing rhetoric right where it's like we as citizens of the united kingdom or we as americans right that that's when you're trying to make the larger umbrella rather than the dividing people into silos. Uh, absolutely. And, and I've found this particular principle to work very effectively in my teaching practice with young people, because as soon as you as a teacher get into a one-on-one -on -one standoff with a student and it's I versus you, my authority versus the student, mm. I've lost. Right. Because, because the, the, the student who doesn't care for my authority, well, that doesn't matter, does it? They've, they've lost. Um, so, the, the, the key that I try and adopt now in my classroom when I'm teaching students is if a student is not doing what's required, then we use words like we need to or we expect mm. or the expectations are that this is done. I don't use the word I and I don't use the word you because that, that's accusatory and it separates the student and puts them on their own and they feel isolated. And when somebody feels isolated, they kick off and they're defensive. So if we can keep that unifying, encompassing language and say, look, these are the expectations. This is what we need. This is what's happening now. This is what we need to change. That, that rhetoric, that, that way of addressing it works so much better than I'm talking, you need to listen. Right. And I guess that that's also the point, though, that through speech, we make worlds, right? We, we, we construct a reality that can become real, based on on the language that we use based on how we we describe the world um based on the the things that we 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 seek to appeal to um based on that we also shape reality a lot of people say with politicians oh don't look at what don't listen to what they're saying just look at what they do policy wise right mm. but, but what what people say especially when they have a large audience um it makes a huge difference. It it uh, it, it it shapes our reality. It it makes um, it it becomes. It has a chance to become reality. The creation of a world that you have 
put in your mind when you have a large a large stage like that a large podium um, mm. you know uh, words words create or tear down civilization they, they, they do and uh, again this is something else that uh, Julian Treasure said that I really admired when he said that the, the human voice is, is the instrument we'll have to learn to play but he said it's the only thing on earth that can declare love or declare war can make peace um, and, and when you think about the power of words and what words can initiate or end um, they really are the, the power to change worlds and, and that is I think why I'm now so intent on learning how to use that power, harness it and make my life and other people's lives better and I think that's why I've fallen into teaching and coaching because I think that's how I can use my words to improve other people's worlds because I guess that's also how um, there, there's an element of, of recruitment here, right? To to a certain view and certain responsibility, and uh, for um, for evil to win, the all the good good people have to do is do nothing, right? Uh, that's that if you're not if you're not there in that space and and providing uh, something positive, something that builds, uh, there are people. In that space, that will provide something that des- that destroys. Uh, there are people that are thirsty for power. There are people that uh, that uh, want nothing more than uh, than uh, someone to hold them up and uh, to do their bidding. Yeah, one of one of the poems that we study uh, here in in England for the the curriculum is uh, Percy Shelley's Ozymandias, and uh, it's all about well, it's, it's based on Ramesses the second, and uh, it's all about the statue that they built of him, and how time and and nature and the neglect from the people uh, have caused this statue to crumble and fall, and his power and his legacy is has evaporated with the wind, uh, because when he was alive, he he was cold, commanding, um, impetuous, mm. and uh, his his people subjected to his rule while he was alive he had power while he was alive he could command people and command armies but when he died his rhetoric went with him and the people were then free from his rule and uh, his his legacy is no more and, and i think that's a very good summary of, of what rhetoric can do and there's another poem by uh, james shirley who called death the leveler basically talking about when we all die we're all equal because even kings die right and, and the last two lines of the poem are only the actions of the just smell sweet and blossom in their dust. So it's, it's all about when we die and when, when we're no longer here, our, our rhetoric and the, the words that we shared and the people that we shared them with uh, may continue as a legacy if it made a positive difference. Mm. I guess that's a, that's a, a good principle actually always to have in mind also is the sustainability of your rhetoric if you're building something that can last um, both as far as like a society that can last friendships that can last relationships that can last uh, mm-hmm. or are you aiming for something that's short-term gain long-term loss strategy mm-hmm. is it something that's can that can uh, both maintain you and other people um for for a long time or forever uh something that is able to yeah something that people want to want to uphold 
and will look back at and cherish uh, and something that that can bind together rather than 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 tear apart in in every relationship in every interaction um, we can we can build our break um, I remember having a conversation with my sister um, some months ago where we were, we're, we're both teachers so we share educational experiences mm. and she said that she had a an observation so a senior member of staff came in to watch her teach and gave us some feedback after the lesson and i've had this experience as well and i can tell you it's very unpleasant when somebody sits across a desk from you yeah and uses their power and their authority to absolutely tear you to shreds it's so demoralizing and, and my sister told me about what had been said to her by this colleague and i said how long ago was this because you talk about it like it's very recent and it still hurts and she said it was seven years ago <sighs> And she still remembers. And that, that's the power that words can have for good yeah. or for ill, is, is they can uh, make people think differently about themselves, sometimes forever. Mm. And, and I wonder how good it will feel to know that we changed somebody's life for the better, but I also wonder the pain at which we might be subjected to when we realise how much damage we did with our words. One time we'll, maybe in, the, in, a, in a future world, we'll uh, have all our words and... Uh, return back to us and uh, mm, that'll be an interesting interview will we, it? Wanting, <laughs> <laughs> will we be wanting uh i guess that's uh that's um it's something that uh, Pla- uh that uh, plato writes about and socrates talks about in, in gorgeous at the very end it's also actually one about the ethics of rhetoric um and at the end he talks about how everyone has um a kind of uh, f- spiritual body that uh, were uh, to parallel their physical body and that people that uh, do a lot of bad in their lives, uh, even though their physical body may look great, their spiritual body is mutilated and has like wheels and lashes on it. Uh, mm. And uh, that one time you'll present that body for a judge. And as he says, uh, I want to present the the cleanest and purest body I can to that judge at that time, uh, whereas the the bodies, the spiritual bodies of the uh, of the tyrants and dictators and the people that have done done ill, uh, will come as almost a mutilated corpse in front of the, those judges, <laughs> and that uh, as 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 far as I can, I want to be able to to come there with a clear conscience. I guess is what what he's saying, um, mm. and that's that's again this responsibility. Um, of the power of words that uh, I want to instill also in my students, that uh, you have the power, but you also have the responsibility for it, and so that should there should be some fear or um, reverence or awe about the great power that you have to instill feelings and images um, into another person. Mm. Amen to that. Yeah. Right. Sounds like a good place to end. I, yeah, I can't think of anything else to to add, and I, I just only hope that people will will go away from here with with a determination to speak up if they need to speak up, reach out for help if they need to reach out for help, reach out and help if they can help. Yes, we can. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you just uh, mute your audio, then I'll just uh, play a, a closing jingle. Been a pleasure. Thank you.